from BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast, is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Me. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no spy girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. This is your moment. Your time to shine. Your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career. And you want an education employers respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Homes.com knows having the right agent can make or break your home search. That's why they provide home shoppers with an agent directory that gives you a detailed look at each agent's experience, like the number of closed sales in a specific neighborhood, average price range, and more. It lets you easily connect with all the agents in the area you're searching so you can find the right agent with the right experience and ultimately the right home for you. Homes.com. We've done your homework. Can you do your best? What's your, well, do an impression. Um, it's kind of hard. Um, God hates fags. <laughs> <laughs> Today we're gonna, you know, f- file out the um, what's the what's the code in libraries? The Dewey, oh, uh, the Dewey Decimal we're, System. We are going to uh, file. We're gonna um, we're gonna look at the Dewey Decimal System <laughs> and fi- <laughs> and check out a Stephen King book from the library. Because, Us fully not knowing how the Dewey Decimal System works. <laughs> because this is like a virgin. The show where we give yesterday's pop culture today's takes. I'm Rose Damu and I'm Fran Torado. <laughs> You are aware that I was a somewhat precocious child, right? I think I've given some evidence to that fact. No, no, no. I, I feel like you were totally normal, like a completely, you know, not a nondescript kind of unmemorable childhood from what I remember. Just totally <laughs> sweet and demure. <laughs> well, I might have been, but I was corrupted. <laughs> and I actually have always been able to trace that corruption to one choice. Of... Are you sure just one? <laughs> what I'm one that that stands out uh-huh. as defining, and I think I've said before that you know, I've always been a big reader. Um, you know, if I was like in a a rom com or something, the thing about me would be like, oh, I love to read. <laughs> um, <laughs> oh, it's so quirky. Yeah. <laughs> um, but um, you know, I never. I kind of went straight from children's fair to adult literature. Mm-hmm. And the way that that happened was through the work of Stephen King Mm -hmm. because I was – I spent a lot of time at the library as a kid, um, especially when I spent weekends with my dad. 
And I remember being in the library one day, and for some reason I was in the, you know, like, adult book section, because I was already a little, like, I knew that I was different. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I saw a book cover um, of a woman's face, and it was on fire. And I just had to know what it was. And it was the novel Carrie by Stephen King. And I checked it out of the library and read it. And was obsessed with it. And I do think it was one of the things that fundamentally shaped and shifted the kind of media I was interested in and the kind of ooky, spooky girl I would become. Okay, I want to hear about this. But can we just have a quick aside to tell the truth on this podcast uh, that there is like a kind of like phrase in the culture, which is you can't judge a book by its cover. But I actually find... That a lot of times you can the book, the book cover is about as good as the book. Like that really happens a lot, and we as a culture should be saying that. Yeah, I mean that's why when you see all these covers today <laughs> with the with the with the cartoon people yeah. on them, you know exactly what kind okay. of book you're, you're you're about to get yourself into. Rose and I are alluding to like a genre of like rom com books that we're have... talking about red, white, and royal. Yeah, blue. Red, yeah. The I, I mean, any case in the Princeton book. Yeah, yeah. The, there are these little kind of like Oscar Health style like uh, millennial illustrations on the cover of like two little you know gays. It's like a guy with his arms crossed, and another, <laughs> another guy is like leaning against one of the letters. Yeah, leaning. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, you know exactly what you're yes. signing up for. So Carrie, yeah, Carrie. Carrie. So and I was very young. I was in fourth grade. So let's say I was eight or nine years old. Mm-hmm. Way too young to read Carrie, mm-hmm. which is a horrifying book um, that's kind of made all the more horrifying because of how first person it is. Mm -hmm. So you're very much in the psyche of all these people doing horrible things, having horrible things done to them. And it really did shape me in a lot of ways. So I do owe a lot of myself in a way, to Stephen King. Wow. And that's one of the reasons why I wanted to talk about him today, along with the fact that when you're talking about the horror genre, you can't not talk about Stephen King because mm-hmm. Stephen King is often credited as the father of modern horror. Mm-hmm. And I think when you look out at the cultural landscape of horror, supernatural horror, everything can be traced in some way back to Stephen King. Yeah, at least American horror. And when we see things right, like right, right. Stranger Things or Goosebumps or like things like that, like it all is in his lineage. And I think the tropes that make a Stephen King book are things that are going to be replicated until the end of time. Yeah, and you did not have a, a like much familiarity with Stephen King before I brought this episode up prior prior to preparing for this podcast the only stephen king thing i had ever seen was the carrie remake starring chloe grace moretz and julianne moore (laughs) which i did on your insistence watch half of last night and Mm -hmm. we'll get into it but i i knew you wouldn't spoiler alert i was not happy (laughs) um so let's talk about the man the myth the legend stephen king Mm -hmm. um Stephen King's old. I don't know how old, but he's an old white man, so who cares? Yeah. Um, he's published 64 novels, which is 
a lot. Yeah. Um, more than that, flop Joyce Carol Oates. <laughs> Actually, <laughs> oh my I have God. no idea. Have you, did you see the Oates tweet that has been, that was circulating yes, about, yes, <laughs> what about she how she's not hot and shouldn't be writing about look, Marilyn Monroe? <laughs> 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 look, it's, it's not, it's, it's kind of not wrong. That, that tweet kind of spilled. Like, literary non-hotties should know their lane. Yeah. And we do. We do. Um, <laughs> So he's written a lot of books. I would say that some of the things that he kind of returns to over and over again are childhood and adolescence. That's a huge part of a lot of his novels. And I and I would say especially the most famous ones, the manifestation of inner demons as outer demons. Mm-hmm. He talks a lot about addiction. Um, he is famously was um, an alcoholic and it worked its way into a lot of his writing. Oh, I didn't even know that. Um, and I also think, you know, his kind of um, fascination with an understanding of children and adolescence, a lot of that comes from the fact that he was a teacher. Um, mm. Carrie, which was um, his first published novel, it was, it was originally published as a short story um, while he was working as a teacher at a like a fancy private boarding school, and then the book was published in 1974, um, and that is really what started his career. I would say he didn't pick up like uh, he still kind of worked as a teacher throughout the 70s, even as he started to publish more novels and they became adapted into films. Carrie was adapted into a film only two years after it was published in 1976. Yeah. Wow, so he became kind of an immediate sensation. He was an he was an immediate sensation. I would say that like the real Stephen King mania is very 80s. Okay. And that is when he became the figure he is today, which is, I think it's he's a very, as our producer put it, um, airport bookstore author. That's how I would have categorized him too. Like to be totally honest, like I just as I I didn't know anything about Stephen King, and in my head he's in the category of airport novels. I would have catalog. I when when authors are this prolific, sorry, like the Daniel Steels of the world or like the John Grishams or whatever. You kind of um I I put him into that category of like a person who makes a ton of. Um, almost formulaically engaging novels. You know what I mean? And I don't actually think maybe that Stephen King belongs in that. I think what he does is maybe a lot more masterful, or at least his popular work is a lot more masterful than airport paperback. You know what I mean? I think so too. When when I say airport novels, I just mean that he's reached such a critical mass of consumption that his work is readily available. His work is always being adapted. We're right now mm-hmm. in, a, in a moment where for the next couple of years, there's like almost always going to be some Stephen King adaptation happening. Which I honestly think is part of like the A24 effect, right? Like I think that the a new popularization and or rather invigoration of prestige horror and um, a a greater popularization of horror and possibility for horror to win awards, I think is people are being like, well, what other Stephen King things are like out there that we haven't, you know, looked at? Yeah. And so much of his work has been revisited multiple times, Mm -hmm. as we see with Carrie, with It. Um, A lot of it has also kind of been remixed um, in in an almost um, incestuous way. Like the Hulu series Castle Rock that um, aired a couple of years ago. And I tried watching a few episodes of and just wasn't super interested. But it was a TV show in which 
um, characters from all of his novels kind of lived in the same town and interacted with each other. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's just so he's he really has um, spread kind of out to every aspect of our culture. And now his um, his sensibility is one that is now being mimicked by uh you know the new things that are peak culture like like you mentioned stranger things stranger things is a direct homage mm-hmm. to stephen king it's the you know kids kids riding around on bicycles spooky stuff happens uh young girl with you know terrifying powers like mm-hmm. it it's all allusions to things like it like Firestarter and Carrie, um, like Stand By Me. Uh, So he has had all of these peaks and valleys of being, you know, relevant in culture. And I don't think that's stopping anytime soon. So, you know, what better time to talk about him than in our spooky era? Yeah. And I think that honestly, something that's like indicative of like more or rather more things that are indicative of Stephen King's work that you're kind of getting at is the storied quality to them that like supersedes the horror genre. Like if you took the it book or whatever, and you took out all the kind of horrific graphic things that happened and happened in it, it would still be a fucking good, compelling story. You know, like he is, is a master of plot. And, you know, I think that you, you pointed out the stranger things um, parallel to me when we were watching the, for the part one remake together. But like something that I've noticed after consuming a few more things in preparation for this episode is that Stephen King's work has a kind of like sublime eeriness to Mm -hmm. it. Like there's the kind of obvious eeriness of like basements or ghosts or, you know, things like that. But like Stephen King understood why clowns are scary or whatever. He knows why twins are scary, right? Like Mm -hmm. um, a kid with an imaginary friend, a really, really Christian protective mom, right? He sees the kind of hidden uneasiness that we might encounter in a literal normal human life. Yeah, it's, like, an, it's an eeriness that is pulled out of mm-hmm. our lives. Like there's a really good quote from the philosophy of horror um, in which Noel Carroll writes that for King, the horror story is always a contest between the normal and the abnormal such that the normal is reinstated and therefore affirmed. Ah, uh, that's such a great way of putting it. It's like what I was trying to say, honestly. And and yeah, and I think on top of that, the thing that you were talking about, that childhood adolescence um, component that works its way into a lot of the books, I think lends itself to Stephen King's fascination with outsiders, mm-hmm. nerds, people that are ostracized. Deviants. Yes, deviants of any kind, um, people with unique talents. Mm-hmm. People um, who are marginalized. Skills. Yes, and I think that also, like, that abnormal normal thing you're talking about is, like, Stephen King, I think, introduces... Um, very inventive, if not totally bizarre, monsters and scares. Like, things that you could never really... I think I, I think the specificity of his work is what makes it really good. And I also think, honestly, the specificity of his work is something that gets him in trouble sometimes. But um, we'll get into that. <laughs> yes. But, you know, let's go back to the beginning, mm-hmm. um, both for Stephen King and for me, more importantly. Um, so Carrie, as I said, was published in 1974, first as um, 
you know, a story in a magazine. And it was something that he thought he should, like, stop working on. And his wife, Tabitha, was like, no, no, this is good. You should keep at it. And he kind of leaned on her to help get inside the female psyche. So His wife's name was Tabitha? Yeah. Is that weird? Tabitha. I mean, she's I mean, sounds a name. She sounds like a like a wench. <laughs> I think a, she actually, sounds like Tabitha, a witch. Tabitha makes perfect sense as the name of someone who's married to Stephen King. <laughs> yes, it does. That's kind I don't of, know. It's she's like still two, married to him. It's like but... two on the nose. Is like yeah. what I'm saying. That's funny. So Carrie for the Virgins um, is a very short novel um, about a girl named Carrie, a, a girly named Carrie White, mm-hmm. who um, is bullied at school because she's weird. And also because she has an extremely religious mother who has sheltered her her entire life. The book starts with Carrie getting her first period um, uh, during gym class in the showers. And her mother has never told her what it is. And so um, she thinks that she's dying. Mm. And the other girls who kind of have been looking for this reason, like an excuse to bully her, um, you know, torment her in this really ugly way. And it unlocks this latent ability Carrie has, which is telekinesis, which is, you know, being able to move things with your mind. Um, These girls are punished by not being able to go to the prom um, and they react in different ways. One of them decides to have her boyfriend take Carrie to the prom out of penance. Mm -hmm. Um, And then one of them decides to further humiliate Carrie at the prom. and this all leads to, you know, the iconic scene where Carrie's crown prom queen uh, gets pig's blood dumped on her and then her mind fractures. And as revenge, she destroys kills everyone. She kills everyone, destroys the town, kills and is killed by her mother. Oh, she's killed by her mother in the original. Yes. And in, in both in both the the uh, book and the 1976 film adaptation before Carrie's able to kill her mother, her mother stabs her. <gasps> and then Carrie kills her mother and escapes their house, which burns to the ground and, um, you know, dies later after Sue Snell, the the sort of sympathetic girl who had her boyfriend take Carrie to the prom, um, finds her and is like with her as she dies. Um, in the in the book, it's it's um a little differently than the Brian De Palma film, um, Carrie's powers also have a sort of you know psychic um, a, a component mm-hmm. where people in the town because the the book is an epistolatory novel, so a lot of it is told through um, letters and through email. letters and also um, transcriptions from. So in the world of the novel, what happened? Um, in uh, Chamberlain, Maine, which is where the book is set, um, has become this national phenomenon. And there's a whole inquiry into it. So a lot of the novel is told through court transcripts or magazine articles. Um, and you find out that a lot of people, like while Carrie was going on her rampage, uh, knew what was happening because they had this psychic connection with her. And, oh, And cool. Sue Snell at the end of the novel is inside Carrie's mind while she dies. And it 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 adds this component to it of um, this girl not only uh, taking her pain out on people in a physical way, but also kind of making this town that has tortured her be witness to what is happening. Can we talk about the fact that, like, 
in this kind of like out the outsider trope that's like in Stephen King's books, this like psychotic break that Carrie has and the literal revenge that she enacts on like the people that have like really tortured her is so satisfying. It like, is it is incredibly satisfying, but it's also horrific. Mm-hmm. Um, and it it is that fantasy that all of us have of being able to get revenge on it's our bullies. It's a wish fulfillment. It is wish thing fulfillment, for, but for it's, sure. But it's taken to you know the nth degree. But it also is the blueprint for a lot of things that would come after it. You know, we would not have things like. Um, the Dark Phoenix saga and X-Men. Mm. We would not have Wanda Maximoff, the Scarlet Witch, mm. you know, losing her mind. Um, we wouldn't have, like, Willow from Buffy going evil. Mm. All of that, it goes directly back to Carrie. Mm. These mentally unstable, powerful women, you know, uh, letting loose on the world or the universe my favorite around trope. them. It is also one of my favorite tropes. <laughs> Yeah, I um I've never I've yet to see the original. It was one of the the things that I was not able to get to before we watched. But I did. It's such a beautiful, beautiful film. I and can't it's wait like, to watch it. It's incredibly sad. Sissy Spacek is so good in it, and even though Sissy Spacek is beautiful, she has this sort of like awkward gazelle like quality that mm. works really well. Um. For Carrie, mm, I, it reminds me, uh, or at least what you're describing, and from what I know from like clips of the movie, it actually I'm just now feeling like it's reminding me of Shelley Duvall and The Shining. Like it kind of feels like a similar archetype. Yeah, you know? and um, like an unassuming, like skinny, awkward white woman. And her mother, who's played by Piper Laurie, um, you know Margaret, um, is horrifying. Mm. Um, I, I mean, she's as She's given sort of this, I think, I mean, because Piper Laurie was so beautiful, she's almost um, like resplendent in her, you know, um, psychopathy in the movie. In the book, it's much more, it's just disturbing because you also, there's a lot of chapters that are first, you know, from her perspective um, of how, you know, she sees Carrie as this, as, um, you know, an abomination because she... You find out that Carrie's mother was raped. That's how she became pregnant with her. And she Mm. wanted to kill her when she was born. And she didn't. And she sort of regretted that Carrie's whole life. Epigenetic Um, trauma, honestly, is like also a thing in Stephen King's books. Like the parents are always fucked up and makes the kids fucked up. Like he really over and over again has a kind of childhood thing that keeps coming through. Yes. And according to my therapist, I have a similar thing. (laughs) (laughs) I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no Spice Girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. 
I want to be remembered for just being me. Amy Winehouse, Back to Black, directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R, under 17, not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. Now I'd like to introduce you to Meaningful Beauty, the famed skincare brand created by iconic supermodel Cindy Crawford. It's her secret to absolutely gorgeous skin. Meaningful Beauty makes powerful and effective skincare simple, and it's loved by millions of women. It's formulated for all ages and all skin tones and types, and it's designed to work as a complete skincare system, leaving your skin feeling soft, smooth, and nourished. I recommend starting with Cindy's Full Regimen, which contains all five of her best-selling products, including the amazing Youth Activating Melon. Serum. This next generation serum has the power of melon leaf stem cell technology. It's melon leaf stem cells encapsulated for freshness and released onto the skin to support a visible reduction in the appearance of wrinkles. With thousands of glowing five-star reviews, why not give it a try? Subscribe today and you can get the amazing Meaningful Beauty system for just $49.95. That includes our introductory five-piece system, free gifts, free shipping, and a 60-day money-back guarantee. All of that available at MeaningfulBeauty.com. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. You watched uh, half of the uh, the reboot, um, Girl. starring Chloe Grace Moretz and Julianne Moore. Girl. I, I okay. I have to say, when I watched this movie years ago, I had a pretty low threshold um, of quality for like horror movies in general. So I remember actually really liking it in large part because I like Julianne Moore and I like Chloe Grace Moretz. Um, but I think that the thing maybe you did not like about it, which I now retroactively do not like about it, is the kind of IMAXification of the story, right? Like it's it's rotted. <laughs> it's, and I I don't even I mean I what do you mean by IMAXification? I I feel like um the uh, so uh, you didn't get to the end, but like I you see it throughout the film. I've watched I have watched clips of the prom scene, mm-hmm. so I do know a little bit what the end looks like. Okay, it's like she literally like blows up the town. There, there's so many special effects, explosions, like um, CGI elements that like have to create Carrie's kind of like psychotic break, and I think that that is in large part like what's wrong with like American movies right now. Like it, it just scrubs out. I think a lot of the integrity of what could be a really good story, like these are complaints that you and I have of like mar- a lot of Marvel movies yeah. or like a lot of just like when when it gets too far into the CGI, it's like I don't really care about these characters as much anymore. Right. Well, because the original movie is all practical effects mm-hmm. and it's so much more effective. Mm-hmm. The remake, I think, is bad a lot 
because of Chloe Grace Moretz. Um, <laughs> Who she's is honestly just, perfectly cast. Like, no, she's not. <laughs> I thought she she's was way, great. She's way too pretty to be Carrie. Like, Oh, is Carrie not supposed to be pretty? Well, no. I mean, in the book, she's written as much more like kind of plain and dumpy. But I don't think it. I don't think it's like um, she needed to be ugly. It's just she looks like a movie star. And I mean, that's mm. a problem with all movies is like these people just look like very attractive actors. Mm-hmm. Um but Chloe Grace Moretz is also just a bad actress. <laughs> um, she's just not believable in the way that Sissy Spacek was. And I also think this is a film that is, I don't think it really works outside of its time in a couple ways. Like, mm. I can suspend disbelief that in the 70s, Carrie White would, because of her extremely religious mother, not know about menstruation. But I don't believe that a teenager in the 2010s, yeah. no matter how sheltered they were, would who went to public school would not know about menstruation. Like would not have taken a health class at some point. It's just not believable. Yeah, I, I, the so the reboot, yeah, takes place in like the modern day ish, and like I, I totally, totally agree with you. I do think like. Honestly, another reason, maybe another reason I enjoyed it was really just because it was the first time I was watching any iteration of the Carrie story, and I probably would have had a much more positive reaction if I had watched the original first. But I think a lot of what I was feeling when I was watching it was kind of my own connection to the subject matter. You know, like, a, a, yeah. a, I don't know. Oh, ha- yeah, it's really personal for my, you. My mom is not a Carrie-level mom. Like, it's it's not anything like that. But, like, a, a child that is, like, protected from the world because of, like, oppressive Christianity and, like, you know, doesn't know things about her own body that then cause real-world harm to her because of that kind of protection, I was just like, whoa, like, that actually is, like, something that um, uniquely hits home and, and has an like a an ever present relevance to it, but I, I totally agree with you. It's it doesn't make sense in, in the two thousands. Yeah. Also, all the girls in the movie look like PacSun models, which is really <laughs> weird. Um, Chloe Grace Moretz's hair extensions are, I mean, are like a horror movie unto themselves. What about Julianne Moore's hair extensions? I mean, Julianne Moore's. It's not. So I think much her hair, hair always. It's looks not good. that. It's not actually a hair extension problem with her. It's just that her hair is still like kind of even though it's like looks very dry and kind of unkempt it's still like a gorgeous red color and i don't believe that margaret white would like do but like fall prey to the sin of vanity yeah. of coloring her hair True, yeah. and she because she's hot. because she's a redhead they kind of tried to do like a strawberry blonde thing with chloe grace moretz and it just it just looks like someone forgot to put toner on her after she got her roots touched up. Um, oh, my God. And also that it was really funny. You know, there's always a scene in a supernatural movie where the character goes to the, li- the library to, like, research what, whatever uh, oh my, is going on. That's, that happens in a lot of Stephen King and things there's in a, general. there's a point where Carrie's reading a book that's just called Telekinesis. And I'm like, <laughs> I don't think that book exists. Stupid. That's so dumb. I forgot about that. Oh and um, also Ansel Elgort is, is in this movie, which, you know. Oh, my God. Was, um, but he does die. Um, but Judy Greer is in the movie, which I was very happy about. But then also she dies. Happy about Judy Greer in literally any movie at any time. Um, but Carrie, like, again, you know, cannot be overstated how much um, I think culture is is owed to it, how much I am owed to it. Um, and, you know, it, it kind of set a lot of things that um, I mean, uh, and Stephen King owes his whole career to it. And it set in motion a lot of things that he would revisit, like. Firestarter, 
which um, he wrote after this, which has also been adapted into various films. Um, What's Firestarter? Firestarter is another novel about a girl with special powers. Mm. It's about this girl whose um, parents were um, uh, part of these trials of experimental um, hallucinogenic drugs in the 70s that gave them like low-grade psychic powers. And they have a child who has this like insane pyrokinetic power where she can like create fires with her mind Mm. and a government agency wants her it was made into a movie with drew barrymore it's one of her like first big films i Mm. think it was pre-et or maybe maybe post-et i don't know um there was a recent remake of it too with zach efron as the dad character uh a woodwatch unfortunately um but was it his new or old face sorry to ask it was his old face Uh, i miss his old face his old face too but um you know, adolescence is something that Stephen King would return to again and again, um, like in It, mm-hmm. which we um, – I've read the book. I've seen the contemporary remakes. I've never seen the miniseries um, starring Tim Curry. Me either. Um, the book was published in 1986. The TV movie, which was a two-part um, movie, uh, came out in 1990. And then the modern remakes came out in twenty. 17 and 2019. So mm. we watched it part one together mm-hmm. yeah. somewhat it recently. A, it was a lovely experience, to be honest. Um, my kind of childhood association with it, honestly, is like associated with a fear of clowns that I think permeated like the 90s, was all across like Halloween costumes, like was absolutely like um, in like goosebumps or like in other kind of scary things that I had growing up. And I just like, I was like, I don't know. I I feel like. Uh, well, here's my question: Were clowns scary before it? I bet you anything. I'm sure that maybe there maybe was like a conversation in the culture about how clowns are creepy, but there's no way that they would, to this scale, be immediately associated with horror. Because I think now clowns are immediately associated with horror because of yeah. Stephen King. And and you know, in the book. The way that it's explained why it, the entity, takes the form of Pennywise is because children love clowns. Right. And it's a way for him to lure them to mm. him so he can scare them and eat them. Right. And that is to say, like, I think at the time that this novel came out, it, there we didn't have culturally the immediate connotation of clowns being scary. And I do think that it is the... Red print. <laughs> yeah, it is the red print. It's honestly. the balloon print. Yeah, I, I, um, I for for those of you that don't know, uh, the it book itself is like Bible length. Like it's it's, it's, very a, long. it's a thick, thick book. Um, and I feel like I know a lot of people that are like, oh my god, it is my favorite book ever. I love that book or whatever. Like I, I think it, it, it's. Despite being so long, I'm always surprised by, like, how much of a sensation it, like, still is. But when I sat down to watch part one with you, I had no idea that there was this, like, kind of epic, um, lifelong story inside of it um, for the virgins. There's a group of kids that, you know, start to encounter it as it's slowly killing children in the town of Derry. Um, And... A lot of horrific things happen. It's vanquished. And then, boom, it jumps 27 years. And the kids have to return to Derry to kill the clown again as it starts finding new victims because they made a pact between each other as kids to come back to the town 
and do so if it ever happened again. Yeah, and what you find out is that it is an entity that has lived in Derry since possibly the beginning of time and, like, is an alien from outer space that crash-landed into Earth. Mm -hmm. And it's an entity that feeds off of fear, so it visits primarily children because I guess their fear tastes better, they're easier to scare, and it manifests as whatever they scare the most. Right. But its most favorite, um, you know, form is Pennywise, the Dancing Clown, Mm -hmm. played by Bill Skarsgård in the film by Tim Curry in the original TV uh, miniseries. And, like, as a kind of monster, Pennywise frequently finds its victims at their emotionally lowest points. Like, mm. it finds children... When you're and, fat, nasty, and broke. Yeah, fat, nasty, and broke. <laughs> like, gay-bashed or, you know, like, uh, fi- just finding victims when they feel already like outsiders. Like, playing back to this, like, outsider thing that keeps going in and out of uh, Stephen King's work. Um, but I'm curious, actually, to know from you... Uh, why this, like, kind of reboot worked for you. Because, you know, you're kind of staunchly against reboots. You and I have not seen um, the Tim Curry one. So, you know, virgins out there, we're virgins to the Tim Curry miniseries. So we would love to know, like, why it's so great. I would imagine it's just, like, Tim Curry that makes it great. But I wanna, when I was Googling, like, trying to find, f- like, images of, like, him as it or whatever, I had a really hard time visualizing how this series would work in the 80s, how the practical effects would work, all this different stuff, because Bill Skarsgård is so fucking good. He is. I have watched some clips on YouTube of some of the Pennywise scenes, Mm. and I think the way Tim Curry plays it is much more... He go. There is a very um, dramatic shift from when he's doing... Pennywise, just this sort of like wise kraken clown mm-hmm. to the monster who eats children. Oh. And with Bill Skarsgård, I think it's, I'm not going to say it's one note because it's not at all, but it's he's it's always, he's always menacing. He's always a monster. He's no always camp. creepy. No camp. I would say there's still a little camp. Sure. Because it's a clown, I guess. Because it's a clown. But I think it's, um, it's he's always sinister and and Tim Curry while still sinister like you still could there's there I think there's a little more humor there um than with than with Honestly, Bill Tim sinister camp is like in every Tim Curry role I can think of I actually feel like Tim Curry is unable to not seem either sinister and or campy. Like, it really is in every single... I'm literally cataloging in my head. I can't think of anything where you it's You know, not I've never that. seen Clue. I really want to watch it. All the virgins are at home screaming, I Rose. I'm not, like a, I'm not like a Clue diehard like I've seen it a billion times, but, like, I know that people have that relationship to this movie. Yeah. We have to... Someone needs to... If we have somebody out there that, like, wants to come in and, like, uh, Pop our cherries on Clue. I've only seen it once. Yeah, so. we should do it. Um, you know, maybe like for around the holidays might yeah. be a good one. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, uh, okay. So why did the reboot work? You, you, what? Why else did you like the reboot? I think it's. I thought it was gorgeous. I thought it was like prestigious, it's beautifully shot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's very scary. The child actors are amazing. Yes. Um, and also it started this Stranger Things level craze mm-hmm. of people being obsessed with these child actors. Mm-hmm. Probably partially because this came out at the same time of like peak Stranger Things mania yeah. and um that little kid is mm-hmm. in both of them. Mm-hmm. And the girl, the main girl is also from a, a Netflix thriller franchise, I'm Not Okay With This, which is so good. 
Yeah. Um, like my sisters were obsessed with this movie. My mm. sisters are um, about to turn 20. So they were like peak, you know, teen, uh, like uh, audience for this movie when it came out. And they even went to a meet and greet that mm-hmm. had it was like a, a mall meet and greet, like what they used to do for boy bands. And you could meet actors from Stranger Things mm-hmm. and it. The Stranger Things kids are so internationally famous, like so mind blowing. The most famous people in the world. Truly. Like Millie I, Bobby Brown is the <laughs> most famous woman in the world. <laughs> the most <laughs> she, we we really as a culture, like I don't think we even fully can grasp how famous those kids are. It's it, it's kind of wild to me. Um but I I, I thought this movie was amazing. I, I think I was really uh, when we were watching it together, I just remember turning to you and being like, this is like a genuinely compelling story like uh and it's hard for me to feel that in a lot in a lot of like the horror genre i didn't feel that way about part two which we'll get yeah. to but, but the like, scares are so well so done good. the effects um, are really good the effects are really good um bill skarsgård can do so much with just a look mm-hmm. um have you ever seen him do the smile out of makeup no it's he does it on a late night talk show it's really funny oh i need to watch that i think um the scariest, not well, like the biggest jump scare of the first movie for me is the scene where they're watching the projector. Oh my god! I'm and then sorry. between one frame and the other, oh and you god. see like the woman turning into him, and then between one frame and the other, he comes out. Oh my god! Um, I'm so scared. But even just like the little moments of him, like he's like standing with Billy's ripped off arm and like waving with it, or when he has the balloon and it like comes out of his face. It's just, it's. Oh, and we, I mean, remember the the Pennywise mania there was when this movie came out? It was a meme. Every fucking beauty YouTuber did a Pennywise (laughs) tutorial for Halloween that year. Stephen King was paying Nick's cosmetics light bill. (laughs) They were, they had it down. Um, Something else that this movie kind of... um, Something that this movie maybe unknowingly... uh, taps on that I'm curious if you noticed was I immediately started thinking of balloon fetishists. Do you know? Is that a thing? Oh my God, girl, I'm actually shook. Oh, is, you... is it people who like to sit on balloons and Pe- and pop them? Yes. If you don't know, there's like a, there's a huge kind of sub- subcultural fetish about people that are really, really turned on be, by the popping or anticipation of popping balloons. Oh, and I find that scary. It is scary. That's the thing is like, I'm curious if it was on, if there's anybody on set who knew about this because there are a few moments. I know there's one, there's like one or two in part two, um, but I think there's something in the first part movie as well where like there are several kind of there's tension built around a balloon that's gonna pop you know what i mean and i thought that Mm. that was again just kind of the thing that we're talking about that sublime eeriness that kind of like uh, unnameable anticipation of something that the tension is so thick yeah yeah yeah. in these movies but particularly the first movie and also there's so many easter eggs that you don't see of because it has control of the town of Der- of Derry. In a lot of scenes, there's usually someone in the background who's watching one of the child characters. Oh my god! And so you know, there's lots of YouTube compilations of all these moments that you missed, and they're really eerie. And it's just, it's. I think it's just very good filmmaking um, and acting, and like all of the all of the parts came together in the right way, which unfortunately can't be said for the second movie. <laughs> I, yeah, the second movie, I, um, I d- honestly didn't even finish um, because in 
the first like 20 minutes or so, I just felt like there were so many scenes in a row where I was like, this feels really, um, it was giving me stars. It was giving it was giving me like unearned like with a dramatic- Z. Yeah, stars with a Z. <laughs> okay. Yeah, sorry, sorry. Stars with a Z. Stars okay. Network. Thank you for clarifying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, sorry, sorry. It was giving like soapy, unearned melodramatic moments. I'm thinking specifically of um, Jessica Chastain. Which how the fuck was Jessica Chastain in this movie? It's so baffling to me. It's because she's it's literally because she's a redhead. That's the <laughs> only reason she was cast. The, like people, they were like, "Who's the redhead actress that we know?" You know, it was so either her stupid. or Amy Adams, and, yeah. they, and I'm sure Amy Adams was like, "I'm good, love, enjoy." Yeah, yeah Amy would have chewed though. Um, but Jessica Chastain has this scene where, um, first of all, in the in the part one of the movie, you've spent a lot of in my opinion, gratuitous scenes with this like pedophile father, right? Mm-hmm. This character has a a, a dad that's Beverly. a pedophile. Yes, great Bever- name. Great name. Beverly has a Bev. dad that's a pedophile. There's a lot of really hard to watch scenes wherein he's like, just she's a captive in her own home. It's yeah, really like, like sad still to watch. My little girl. Yes. Like, and it's one of those things that I think Stephen King leans into and why it finds her as a victim and finds her at her lowest moment so frequently. Uh, do you know why? I mean, part two was like critically like not you know, loved. Like, people didn't like it at all. Why didn't people like it? Like, do you know? I I think a lot of it is just because the adult story is not as interesting as the child story. Mm. Um, You know, the way the novel plays out is that um, the uh, the two are kind of intermingled. I mean, it is separated into the the older and younger, but they do kind of interact with each other a bit more. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, like... It when you think of it, you don't think of the adult parts of it. You think no. of the kids being scared by the creepy clown, and so I, I, I think it's just um not enough story um in the back half of the book is stretched out over a lot of movie, mm. and and it was three hours. Wasn't it's it? really long. It's not as effective. I will say there are still scenes that are good and yeah, very scary. Like? I think. One of the scariest visuals is when um, James McAvoy is in the fun house and Pennywise is behind the glass Mm -hmm. trying to get to the kid hitting his head Mm -hmm. and his like mouth stretches open. That just that image haunts me. And it's like incredible CGI work, Mm -hmm. really good acting like but that's all the movie is. It's like a collection of moments that are kind of good, but they're not held together by, um, you know, a, a movie that knows how to weave them all together in a compelling way, which I think the first one does really effectively. And I think in part two, there was some of this, like, IMAXification thing that we were talking about, too. Like, I felt like there were way more big swings on the CGI level to pull off part two. Oh, yeah, like the big Paul Bunyan guy? Yes, the Paul Bunyan guy. Which isn't like, scary. The little, like, cre- not scary. And the little creatures coming out of the fortune cookies and stuff mm-hmm. like that. Um, I-, I think, honestly, part of the reason it didn't work for me was that the anticipation of seeing it and when we don't see it um, which, by the way, I love that its pronouns are it, um, <laughs> which uh, maybe Stephen King invented it, it pronouns. Um, I uh, feel I, I felt like because we'd already seen it, it was a lot less scary in part two. Yeah. I also feel like um, there was something tonally off about Bill Hader, who had really great jokes and like I really was probably my favorite part of the movie, but felt like a different movie. You know what I mean? Like, his jokes were, like, just 
um, something that I that added levity and we're definitely true to part one but I was just like it feel I don't know if he's like in this like cinematic universe you well know? I think like the the wise cracking you know class clown figure again works another, better with kids and another trope maybe that Stephen King you know laid the foreground of because we see that trope in a lot yeah. of different things today but queer legend <laughs> queer legend right Bill Hader spoiler alert Bill Hader's character ends up being He's a gay. closeted gay man why does Bill Hader keep playing gay From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no spy girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered for just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. Now I'd like to introduce you to Meaningful Beauty, the famed skincare brand created by iconic supermodel Cindy Crawford. It's her secret to absolutely gorgeous skin. Meaningful Beauty makes powerful and effective skincare simple, and it's loved by millions of women. It's formulated for all ages and all skin tones and types, and it's designed to work as a complete skincare system, leaving your skin feeling soft, smooth, and nourished. I recommend starting with Cindy's Full Regimen, which contains all five of her best-selling products, including the amazing Youth Activating Melon serum. This next generation serum has the power of melon leaf stem cell technology. It's melon leaf stem cells encapsulated for freshness and released onto the skin to support a visible reduction in the appearance of wrinkles. With thousands of glowing five-star reviews, why not give it a try? Subscribe today and you can get the amazing Meaningful Beauty system for just $49.95. That includes our introductory five-piece system, free gifts, free shipping, and a 60-day money-back guarantee. All of that available at MeaningfulBeauty.com. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Well, let's talk about The Shining, um, which is maybe in my top five movies of all time. you say it's one of the greatest movies ever created? I I would say that. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. like with 
absolutely no hyperbole. Uh-huh. I, I, and I, I would completely validate that. I thought it was an amazing movie. Yeah. So the novel was written in 1977, making it, you know, one of Stephen King's earlier novels. I think it's um, one of his most personal novels. Mm. Um, the film version directed by Stanley Kubrick starring Jack Nicholson and Shelley Duvall um, came out in 1980, so pretty quick turnaround there. Um, the film is, I, I think, like universally considered one of the greatest mm-hmm. films ever made. It's a, definitely one of the best horror movies, if not the best horror movie mm-hmm. ever made. Um, one of the defining films of Jack Nicholson's career. Mm-hmm. I think probably... And Shelley's. And Shelley's. Probably the thing that is associated with Stephen King more than anything. I do think yeah, the, three, the three things we're talking about today are probably Stephen King's most famous novels mm-hmm. um, and the ones that that people think of first when they think about him. Um, and I think because The Shining is is so personal to to him and there's so much more of him in it than, than the other two things we've talked about, maybe that's partially why. Can you describe that? Because Stephen King does, I think, routinely put himself or a shell of himself into a lot of his books that you can spot pretty quickly. But I but I yeah did recognize that it was he was very in The Shining. A lot of his um characters are authors. You see this in Misery mm-hmm. um uh which I've still never seen or read. Um I think The Shining specifically is really personal to him because um uh Jack Torrance the main character is an alcoholic um, and Stephen King, as, as I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, uh, had a, a really intense struggle with alcoholism. Mm. And I do think this is a you know a version of himself in which he's trying to work that out on the page. Um, the The book and the film are very different. Mm. I think The Shining is one of the few examples of a film adaptation transcending its source material wow. because it is I I didn't read the book until like um kind of crazily enough I read the book in early covid quarantine ooh um, that sounds like terrifying which is like a, a bit on the nose <laughs> wait, to read wait. a book about being what? stuck somewhere um, until you're driven to madness and murder uh, yeah honestly i'm surprised i was inhabiting spaces with you at the same time and um, survived to tell the tale i i will say i'm not gonna say that the 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 movie is better than the book because i don't think that's like a, an interesting take mm-hmm. i would say though that it transcends the book just because of how iconic it has become in terms of of its visuals, which I think are more than anything what Kubrick brought to the project. Like this incredibly artistic visual language to tell this story, um, which did sacrifice a lot of what King thought was important about the novel. And he has has gone on record many times saying that he's not a fan of the movie. Oh, Um, I did not know that. The... Actually, though, um, so Stephen King did write a sequel to The Shining, Doctor Sleep, um, and a movie version of that was made. It's I, I actually love the movie. Wow. Um, Ewan McGregor plays the grown-up Danny Torrance, the little boy. Okay. And we can, like, get into this, I think, after we talk about The Shining, but it does 
bridge the book and the movie versions um, to kind of combine them and fix some of the problems and reinsert a lot of what was lost in the adaptation of the novel. Mm. And Stephen King has said that that film has helped him appreciate the original Shining film in a new way. Oh, that's really cool. That makes me want to watch it, honestly, now that I've watched The Shining. Um, So for The Virgins, The Shining is about um, a a writer named Jack Torrance who has recently been fired from his position um, at a private boarding school. You find out more of this in the novel, but it's because he like hit a kid or something. And so Stephen Stephen King. So he's Stephen King, were you what what were you doing at your 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 school that you were teaching at? He's um trying to find work to support his wife and young child. Um and he gets a job as the winter caretaker at um this hotel. In the movie it's the Overlook Hotel. And essentially what that means is he and his family will spend the winter there just maintaining the hotel. Um, but they're going to be totally by themselves. Um, kind of un- unbeknownst to him, his son has the psychic ability that um, the the cook at the hotel tells him um, he refers to as the shining, which is, you know, he can see ghosts and he um, has this sort of like psychic ability. And it's explained to him that um, people shine, but sometimes places shine. And this hotel is a place that shines and also kind of wants to eat his power. Mm. And so they spend the winter in this hotel and the hotel um, kind of is a way to get to the sun, which is more explicit in the book than it is in the movie, uses Jack Torrance as like a vessel and it corrupts him and drives him crazy mm. until he is driven to try to kill um, his wife and son. Yeah, it's kind of the quintessential cabin fever story, yes. so to speak. It's like introduced thematically right at the beginning. And um, it must be said that American Horror Story Hotel is essentially like a bastardization of of like what Stephen King invented here, which I honestly didn't know until I turned on the movie, like really. like, And I was like, oh, this seems familiar. I didn't even watch American Horror, Horror Story Hotel, though I feel like we should watch it together because I want to see Gaga, Mama. Gaga. It's um, I don't know. I don't know that I can do another rewatch of it anytime <laughs> soon because I have rewatched it a few times. Oh, you um, <laughs> wait, but, but we'll we'll have to do an American Horror Story episode eventually. You virgins you really wanted us to do one. Oh we could not make the time for it because I can't. It's it's a lot to consume, girls, and I've only watched one season. Um, but I'm really interested to hear what you thought of the movie watching it for the first time. Yeah. So hot off of our Silence of the Lambs discussion, which I you know. Uh, didn't I didn't love that movie for reasons you can listen to. I kind of went into The Shining putting this movie in something of the same category, right? Like You thought I overhyped it? No, no, no. Not you specifically. I thought Culture at Large was putting this, ca- much like Science of the Lambs, they're like The Shining, one of the greatest movies ever created. Um, it was starring a middle-aged white guy and his struggle. You know what I mean? Like, and I feel like, um, and, and also just middle-aged white guy who's evil and like the woman that is beholden to like his like villainy or whatever. Um, totally not the same thing at all. Uh, and also stylistically had so much more to say than Silence of the Lambs, which was much more procedural. Not a bad thing, but like much more procedural of a movie than I feel like a Stanley Kubrick vehicle which is so Im- imagistic and, you know... Oh, even just the opening yes. when they're driving up the mountains and all those overhead shots with the score in the background. I, I was kind of entranced by 
Kubrick's very exacting process and the kind of very specific and creative directorial things that I think I'm really, you know, attracted to usually. Like, all the girls know that I am a kind of style over substance person. Sometimes this movie brings both. Um, but it, but it, it is, it does lean more heavily on style. It is so stylistic. And obviously, you know, you can't have a conversation about The Shining without talking about Shelley Duvall and her, like, experience of making this film um, and how it was a really grueling weeks and weeks and weeks later long process that was much longer maybe than your average kind of film might be. And, and she was terrorized by Stanley Kubrick. Yes. And there are like, um, you know, it, this this movie ha- holds the Guinness World Book of Records for like most takes of a scene with dialogue in it or something like that. There's the scene between the kid and um, the guy that kind of explains what the shine is and mm-hmm. what sh- the, the title is. Um, they apparently shot that like 158 times or something. But the staircase scene, which is maybe my favorite scene in the movie, wherein Jack Nicholson is kind of experiencing this psychotic, or rather, his psychotic break is really crystallizing. Like Shelley it's, Duvall is it's now mas- masked off. It's exactly. Which is something that is said a lot um, in the novel. It's like this recurring thing, like mask off. Right. Um, but it's when he reveals to, to Shelley Duvall that, like, He's after her. Yes, she is now explicitly aware that, like, the jig is up. And it's all happening on this staircase as he's kind of ascending, like, slowly, like, creepily talking to her. And she's holding a bat and being like, get the fuck away from me. Like, but but she's talking to her husband. You know, she's like, I don't know who you are anymore and what's going on. They apparently shot that 127 times. And if you haven't read the Hollywood... insane. Insane! And if you haven't read the Hollywood Reporter profile on Shelley Duvall, um, I strongly recommend it. It's so good. It's about, like, her um, life as a recluse after, you know, losing a relationship with Hollywood, she pretty much has your ideal life, Rose. Like, she's, like, living in, like, podunk nowhere, Texas, like, you know, with her, like, truck and, like, all of her things, like, just sitting around and, like, enjoying life and enjoying, like, her your her own company and, like, just, like, being isolated. And the profile writer... Um, talks to her about Stanley Kubrick's process and how grueling it all was. And they talk about the staircase scene um, and how it was shot 127 times. And Shelley Duvall says something to the effect of, like, I actually haven't watched the movie in a really long time. I, I would actually like to revisit it, which is shocking to me. And then Well, because the, the, it is, you know, the thing that she's the most known for, even though yeah. she, you know, she also, like, uh, is known to a generation of children because of her fairy tale show. Yes, and also as Olive Oil um, in Popeye. As Olive Oil. And she had, um like, several other, you know, notable roles before The Shining, but this is what cemented her in pop culture. Um you know, her image, yeah. I think, and her, her voice and her manner. Right. And so when she said to the, the the writer of this profile, like, I would love to rewatch it, the writer pulls out their phone and they watch the staircase scene together and Shelley Duvall just starts crying and the writer's like, what's going on? And she's like, that took three weeks to shoot. We shot this one scene for three weeks. And it is a emotionally traumatizing scene. It's an emotionally traumatizing movie, which is part of what the profile is getting at and why Shelley Duvall's unraveling was so entwined to a process that was way too close to the subject matter. I think that Shelley is unfortunately an example of like why we need mental health professionals on the sets of films that deal with traumatic or 
all-consuming or like method kind of like acting. Right. Well, because now we have things like intimacy coordinators mm-hmm. and we also have um you know there have been so many stories in recent years about the dangers of people going method and mm-hmm. like being horrible on set. So when mm-hmm. are we going to have, you know, like humanity coordinators to make sure that these <laughs> Fucking, like, (laughs) asshole actors and directors because, you know, right now there's a conversation happening around David O. Russell and his film Amsterdam and how how abusive he is to his actors. You know, like, it's just – is I you have to think, is it worth it? And, like, I think a lot of people would look at The Shining and say it is worth this woman's pain. But I can't help but wonder, like – is what ended up in the movie, is that from take one or is it from take mm. 20 or is it from take Jeez. 127? Like, and we'll never know. And it's like, t- with the staircase scene as an example, it's like, is the deterioration I'm watching on screen acting or is this shot 126 and like Shelly's really deteriorating? Like, it is... It is. It was hard. It was. I wouldn't say it was hard to watch. I thought she's so compelling and and her performance is canon forever you know what i mean jack nicholson on the flip side i patently don't like jack nicholson that's something i'm copying to i don't like watching him in movies uh he's not my t i don't think he's a bad actor i understand if you like jack nicholson that's fine by that's like fine for you he's not my girl um i i you know probably has something to do with the fact that like i've never forgiven him for wooing diane keaton in something's gotta give when she could have been with Keanu Reeves, um, but at the same time, I also have never forgiven Diane Keaton for being a Woody Allen apologist. He got what she deserved. <laughs> yeah, I feel like that's fine. But um, Jack Nicholson in this movie was the first time I've watched a Jack Nicholson movie where I was like, I loved that. And I loved him in it. He's incredible. All yeah. work and no play makes Jack a dull boy. Yeah, he such a good just scene. is so fucking good. Yeah. And... You know, um, I thinking about this, you know, like I'm writing a book right now and so much of what this book is about is writer's block. And like, again, this goes back to Stephen King putting himself in his work like this author who's struggling, who can't write anything. Um, It, you know, hits a little close to home. From BBC Radio 4. Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no Spice Girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th.
Now I'd like to introduce you to Meaningful Beauty, the famed skincare brand created by iconic supermodel Cindy Crawford. It's her secret to absolutely gorgeous skin. Meaningful Beauty makes powerful and effective skincare simple, and it's loved by millions of women. It's formulated for all ages and all skin tones and types, and it's designed to work as a complete skincare system, leaving your skin feeling soft, smooth, and nourished. I recommend starting with Cindy's Full Regimen, which contains all five of her best-selling products, including the amazing Youth Activating Melon. Serum. This next generation serum has the power of melon leaf stem cell technology. It's melon leaf stem cells encapsulated for freshness and released onto the skin to support a visible reduction in the appearance of wrinkles. With thousands of glowing five-star reviews, why not give it a try? Subscribe today and you can get the amazing Meaningful Beauty System for just $49.95. That includes our introductory five-piece system, free gifts, free shipping, and a 60-day money-back guarantee. All of that available at MeaningfulBeauty.com. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. I do want to tell you a little bit about Dr. Sleep, the sequel, yeah, and sort of... So I think something to understand is that in the book, the way The Shining ends is not with, you know, Jack Nicholson um, being defeated and them just abandoning the hotel. Um, what happens is that Jack kind of breaks through the hold that the hotel has on him and goes down to the boiler, which has been referenced several times throughout the novel, and sets it to explode so that the hotel burns down and so that Danny and Wendy can escape. So does so he dies he sacrifices himself in the boiler to save them. Whoa. Um, Okay. And so Doctor Sleep is about the grown up Danny Torrance who Ha, who, um, you know, Wendy dies early in his life and he spends his life um, numbing his psychic powers through alcohol just the same way his father did, you know. Mm. And um, he establishes this psychic connection with a young girl who has the same kind of, you know, shining abilities that he does, only much more powerful. She becomes the target of this group of sort of psychic vampires mm. Um who are called the True Knot, and their leader is this woman named Rosie the Hat. She's played by Rebecca Ferguson, who... Who is that again? She's, um, she's Lady Jessica in Dune. She's okay. Timothy Chalamet's mom. <laughs> Thank you so and much she for... Is, she's so good in the movie. She's so, so good in Dune, So they're, you know, they're hunting this girl down. Eventually, Danny um, links up with her, and, um, you know, they kind of... They kill a lot of her um, companions... Uh, but then it's kind of just her left against them. 
And they in the book, they kind of they bring her back to the site of where the hotel used to stand because it's like this powerful place. In the movie, what they do, because in the original Shining film, the hotel was never burned down, they go back to the hotel. <gasps> and the film ends in the way that the original Shining film does, where Danny, rather than his father, is the one who sacrifices himself and causes the hotel to explode. Oh my god, that's so cool. Like, as a filmmaker, that's such a smart thing to do. And it does really... Because you're toying with both like iterations of the intellectual property and somehow making both true. Yeah, because it, it equally draws from both Stephen King's novels and the, you know, the visual landscape that Stanley Kubrick created and melds them together in this really beautiful way. And I think that's why Stephen King has said that this movie has really helped him appreciate the original film in a way he was never able to before. Mm. And it's such a good movie. I definitely recommend anyone, if you like The Shining, if you like Stephen King, definitely give it a watch. Rebecca Ferguson is such a good villain. Um, you know, I ride for you and McGregor. To talk about, honestly, Stephen King adaptations more generally, and this very thing that you're getting at about, like, being true to the source material, just on a personal level, I feel like I will always appreciate a Stanley Kubrick kind of reimagining of the source material that discards some of it for the sake of cinema as opposed to something like honestly it i feel like it chapter two suffered from trying too hard to be true to the book because i i was when i was watching it googling to see if these scenes had happened in the book and nine times out of ten it was actually in the book and i was like to be honest I wish it I wish it wasn't in the movie. Like I, I felt like it was uncompelling for whatever reason. And I think that there is something that um is really lost when you are too attached to the subject matter and don't understand the importance of your own medium and how it can transform things. Absolutely. And that is something that is inextricably tied to Stephen King because I think mm. the way that we judge a lot of his work will be either by how true it is to the source material or how far away it is. And I think the best balance with Stephen King and probably any adaptation is how you're able to blend those things in the best way. Um, and I think things like It Part One, mm. like Doctor Sleep and like The Shining are ways in which, you know, filmmakers have gotten it right. And like keeping what works, discarding what doesn't and inventing what will bring it all together. I just remembered something that you and I need to discuss in terms of this, like, book-to-movie source material thing. And the thing that has been left out out of every iteration of a It adaptation, which is a scene that happens at the end of the children. Oh, no. When all the children—so, okay, virgins, there are s six children total? I think so. It's like it's a lot of children. Yeah. They're like six children that are kind of the main characters and moving action of this film. They the losers club. Yes, they, the as they deem themselves. And effectively like part 1, like the part 1 of the movie, right? They go through this whole saga. They're at, you know, it's kind of like enemies to lovers to friends, like their relationships all change because of it and they their bonds are like forged a lot tighter. Some of them fall in love with each other, some of them, you know, grow to love each other more whatever. Um when it is vanquished, 
Rose, you told me that there's something that happens in the book that never occurs in the movie. Would you like to share with the virgins and with Phoebe, honestly, yeah. about what, what happens? Yeah. So, like, and remember, these are all, you know, young, like, preteens. They're like, they're like, I want to like say. A, like 12, thir- 11, 12, 13. Yeah, 11, um, 12, 13. When they vanquish it for what they think is forever, but, like, honestly, kind of in their minds, no, isn't. Yeah. Um, they're kind of in this, like, fugue state. And the novel dives into this more. It's like they they do this thing, this, like, ritual thing. Um, A that, blood ritual. It, yeah, but, like, it's the way that they defeat it is, like, because they're more powerful together. Mm-hmm. And in the book, as a way to, like, seal that power all of the boys have sex with beverly um in the sewers and it's not it's, a, it's like pretty much an orgy like it's, it's not cons- an or- no it's not an orgy it's because- like a consensual gangbang like yeah oh my god but it, it, and i guess it i guess it low. happens in this way that's sort of like dreamlike kind of yeah and, and like in i think this is also Kind of, I, it's been a while since I've seen part two, but I do believe that as they grow up, they forget a lot of what happened mm. in the first movie, and it's only because they've repressed it. Well, I think it's part of like the magic of it, oh. and it's only once they kind of go back to Derry that they start remembering it all things. Flashes back, yeah. Um, but yeah, you know, a um, a like thirteen year old gangbang is not really something that we need to see adapted into a film, and I'm glad that that was cut. <laughs> it's so wackadoodle. I mean, honestly, so I haven't read his books, but I can imagine why it happened. Like, it's just something that's disturbing, and Stephen King is good at like disturbing images and motifs and he knew what he was writing was disturbing but like when he's been asked about I've like you know googled and like when he's been asked about it um nowadays and why you know he thinks it hasn't been included in any of the movies he is shockingly unfazed by it. he's like he's like oh yeah you know it's interesting because people are you know much more sensitive around content like that these days and I was like no, no, no. I, I think we were still pretty sensitive about it when this book came out. Like, I don't think anything has changed. Like, yeah. I don't think he he's I think, honestly, and this might be a little bit of a bridge to discussion about Stephen King just as a figure. But Stephen King's subject matter is sometimes a little out of touch. And I think that you could see that in it part two with like the quote unquote Native American rune book or whatever. Well, that's something he does a lot. Um, a lot of his books feature even The Shining. Mm-hmm. You learn about the hotel that it was built on an indigenous burial uh-huh. ground. It's something that is in Pet Cemetery as well. Mm. We won't get too into Pet Cemetery, which is I do love Pet Cemetery, both the book and the movie, but you haven't seen it, so we're not going to get into it. Um, but yeah, it's it's a recurring thing that he does, and it's just like it's so of the time that he was really popular, mm. but that's not an excuse for it. No, yeah, and I honestly think um, Stephen King is not alone in that. Like, I think a lot of horror movies exploit. Um, without any sort of like research or connection to ind- indigenous communities, the mysticism of you know Native American lore and how um, they create a very generic watered down version of it, a very white version of it, right? That also you know happens with like Stephen King's relationship to um, like people with disabilities. Like ableism comes up in a lot of horror films, not just Stephen King's, but like yes, he's like Stephen King is guilty of of that all the time. Yeah, another th- another. Kind of horrifying part in Pet Cemetery is that um, the the wife 
has this um, sister who was uh, like very ill or dis- she she had I think like really bad scoliosis when she was a kid. Her name was Zelda, and she's like one of the most horrifying things I've ever seen on film, and it's like it's not it's not great. Oh um, oh really? Yeah. So wait, you didn't like you didn't love the movie? No, I do love the movie, but Stephen King, you know, he's not perfect. He's no. an old white man. He's literally um, an old white man. I mean, he did he did say he did um, ride for trans people um, in the face of J.K. Rowling. No way! But oh, he yeah, also, that's true. Yeah, but that. he also kind of like it wasn't in like the best way. <laughs> yeah, what the, did he the, say? The tweet was he said, um, "My opinion is that Joe Rowling is wrong about trans women. Leave shitty and hateful out of it, please." So he's saying like, "I don't agree with her, but like, she's not a bad person." Oh, interesting. You know, there are some things about like. <laughs> I, I, I'm actually shook. I, I thought that he would have kind of a worse take because he seems like one of those people that'd be like, cancel culture sucks, am I right? Like, um, but he did have like, you know, alongside it, like a, around the same time, I want to say this like weird tweet about like diversity and like the Oscars race and how like, um, like diversity and like quality of a, a film or TV show is they're like mutually exclusive and like how like diversity doesn't improve quality and vice versa. And it's like, that's, like, just categorically, like, not true. And, of, of course, like, a white man, like, would say that. I, like, I feel like I understand what he's trying to say. Like, if I, I, if I try to be, you know, a white woman whisperer, which I am often uh, you whisper. Be- you whisper to me all the time. <laughs> I do know how to do it. I think I can see why an old white man would be, like, it's not fair to the material to, like, tokenize it. Like, I think a lot of people from this generation are latching onto this idea of tokenization and how it's bad without understanding that there is a vast difference between tokenization and just a a story from a person that is marginalized. You know what I mean? Um, So I don't know. I wasn't surprised by it. I I think it's funny. Um, I remember like when this like tweet storm came up and he's like, again, making like quality and diversity, like mutually exclusive and like you know, you can do both. Like, you really can do both, and it costs you nothing. Yeah. Um, also, I mean, let let it be said, for a man, this man has written 64 books. Not all of them are good. No. Some of them, I have, I, I used to uh, m- be much more kind of hardline about I always finished books. Now I will, in the, you know, modern parlance of book talk, I will DNF a book if okay. it's not working for me do not finish oh dnf um, is that like a fan fiction term or something no it's like people who are reviewing books so like i dnf to this cuz it was bad or like whatever Ooh, i love but that but when i was a teenager the only book that i ever stopped in the middle of with was the stephen king book called dreamcatcher which was i think Ooh, about people already sounds bad. which i think was about people who were like um uh like aliens took over their bodies and then they like farted them out <laughs> What? Yeah. I would watch that. It was just, and I do think it was adapted into a movie. Um, Since we are like a virgin, can we also just have like a quick reaction to the gay bashing scene at the beginning of It Part 2? Because when you and I were working at Out Magazine, I remember seeing the takes. Oh, wait. Wait, we no, no, published no. a take. No, Did you? I, it was mine. No! I had a viral article that I wrote. Wait, let me let me Google Pennywise <laughs> Rose Damu so I can get the the title right. Oh no, uh, Pennywise we can take this out as well. Rose I didn't, know that. I didn't know about okay, that. Okay, yeah, the article <laughs> the article is called Pennywise is surprisingly anti queer in, <laughs> in, in it chapter two, which that, is 
and the, the virgins. No, but I wrote it as like a as a troll. Well, as the virgins need to know that that's a tro- do you do they do the virgins understand why that's a troll? Because yeah, that's because, a very specific era of the internet. Yes, because like it, this is the era of the Babadook and like people mm. making the Babadook gay, and so like a lot of what was happening on Tumblr and stuff was like the Babadook and Pennywise are like boyfriends, blah blah blah, and so I wrote this article being like. Literally, the the like uh, the deck of this story is the killer clown isn't the ally we thought he was. Right, but the and the headline is a dig at an era of queer media as well. It must be said, wherein into more grinders like media brand was like oh making the things. Ariana Grande surprise. Yes! <laughs> You forgot about that. There was this headline from Into, which amazing journalists at Into, a, a phenomenal media brand, like really made compelling stories, had, you know, a, a lapsed moment of judgment wherein there was a headline um, that was like Ariana Grande's album, whatever, is like surprisingly anti-queer. It was like just an, we were all writing stupid headlines in in this day and age. I don't fault him for that, but it was a meme forever. Like we were tweeting things about things being surprisingly anti-queer yeah, I did forever. It. I did it a lot. And this Pennywise moment was an homage. And to let that. me tell you, writing this article has haunted me because like a couple <laughs> other things I've written that went viral, it will it like in the years past, every couple months it would go viral again. And I would get people commenting on like my pin tweet on Twitter being like, how could you think that a killer clown would not be homophobic? Like just it would be either people from the right wing being like, you know, <laughs> saying something about how he should be homophobic and people, liberal people being like you stupid bitch, he's like a murderer, yeah. like blah, blah, blah. Even just looking at this article, there's so many comments on it. It's uh, at, like the anti-queer thing. People just didn't get it. It was they too, didn't get it. It was too it was ahead an- of its time. Next week, we'll be back with another bonus episode on a specific piece of media that is TBD. So mm-hmm. it'll be a nice little surprise for you. But for our regular episode next week, we will be sinking our teeth into all things vampires. Mm-hmm. So prepare uh, your blood sacrifices. Get out your uh, your garlic and uh, your iron steaks. Well, no, we don't want that because we want the vampires. We, we want that. We want to. Yeah, be usurped. you gotta you gotta you know stretch that neck out so they can sink their teeth. Do you into. think maybe vampires have like a garlic kink? Maybe they like how much it hurts. Mm, I don't know. Oh yeah, that's part of the foreplay. Could be. Anyways. Um, in the meantime, find us on Instagram at like a virgin for twenty sixty nine. Tell us what's your favorite Stephen King book or adaptation. Do you hate Stephen King? Do you think he's a flop? Are you more of a Carrie? Are you more of a Wendy? Mm. Um, and as always, you know, you can slide into our DMs and tell us what you think of the show, what you think we should cover next. Also, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps us out so much. Also, um, rate the podcast on Spotify, but only if it's five stars, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm your co-host, Rose Domu. You can find me anywhere online at Rose Domu. And I'm Fran Tirada. You can find me at Fran Squishco anywhere you want. Subscribe to Like a Virgin anywhere you listen to podcasts. Uh, like a Virgin is an iHeartRadio production. Our producer is Phoebe Unter with support from Lindsay Hoffman, Julian Weller, Jess Krainchich, and Nikki Etor. Until next week, see you later. Nobody wants to play with me. (laughs) (laughs) 
I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. We went from normal life, healthy child to acute lymphoblastic leukemia or B-cell, ALL. The St. Jude team came up to get CJ via ambulance. Shortly after that, I noticed a rainbow. It meant that there was hope. We were driving into hope. To have hope is to have your child healthy. And we have that because of St. Jude. You can help kids fight childhood cancer. Please become a St. Jude Partner in Hope today by visiting musicgives.org.